Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our focus today is Jeremiah chapter 45, in which through Jeremiah, God directly addresses Baruch, who has been Jeremiah's right-hand man throughout his ministry. Now, Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe. He bore witness to Jeremiah and a lot of what he went around doing and recorded it as he was instructed. Our text today actually occurs, well, really, let me get to that later. In the nine chapters previous to our chapter today, it is Baruch who will have to read the Lord's message that is captured on the scroll to the people. Jeremiah had made an oath that he wouldn't be able to go into the temple, and so it's going to fall to Baruch to read that message that Jeremiah wrote from God. And like Jeremiah, Baruch is going to be accused of stirring up the people. He'll have to go into hiding when the king wanted him dead. He will be accused of being a traitor and a few other not nice things. But we know a little bit about Baruch. When we read 2 Chronicles, we find out that his grandfather was a governor under the Jerusalem king. His brother was a quartermaster or a prince in the king's court, depending on which translation you prefer. From what we know about Baruch... He comes from a family that is well-connected, well-respected, and many of his family members had positions of power in the government. And lastly, we know that he himself was quite educated and came from a life of privilege. I think it is safe to say that Baruch could have had a lot of good things come easily to him in life. Could have had every opportunity to succeed in life, and I think he knew that. As long as he would toe the party line, as long as he did what was expected of him and followed that life that was so clearly laid out for him, as long as, of course, God doesn't get in the way. But pull out your Bibles and follow along in your bulletin or it'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at this entire chapter today and we're going to see just what happens to our friend Baruch. Now, like I said, here in chapter 45, we find ourselves at the end of one of the main sections in Jeremiah. This is a section that starts in chapter 36 and ends with chapter 45. In fact, chapter 45 really plays as this flashback scenes because for some reason the events of Jeremiah aren't captured here in a chronological order. This flashback scene, if it was written chronologically, would come at chapter 36, verse 8. Right after Baruch had listened to Jeremiah and then would go and read the word of the Lord in the temple, in the presence of the people and palace officials. As soon as he reads this scroll that you'll see next week, someone is going to take that scroll, take everything that he said, and they're going to bring it to the king, Jehoiakim. And then the king is going to take a knife He's going to cut up the scroll because he does not like what Jeremiah and Baruch had to say. And then he's going to light the scroll on fire, basically saying this means nothing. And then he's going to command Baruch and Jeremiah to be killed. And so from chapter 36 all the way to where we are, about 20 years is covered really quickly. Now I can't be certain why this falls where it does, why this flashback is written here. And I'm not so sure that it is important why it's placed here. I think the importance of this structure is really that we are going to get a glimpse and see Baruch the scribe and this interaction that he has with God at a very pivotal moment in his life. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me. The Lord has 
added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning, and I find no rest. Baruch has been a constant partner with Jeremiah. He's had to endure a lot of opposition and abuse. If you remember a few sermons back, I talked about 23 years of preaching and no one listening. He certainly suffered much for his faithfulness to God and for sticking with Jeremiah. And here in this moment feels that God is the one to blame for this grief and sorrow that he is going through. It's hard to miss the self-centeredness of his attitude, the personal pronouns, the emphasis on I and me here. I think it's easy to assume that Baruch had been mourning for the desolations that were coming to his country, but now in the moment before he himself will have to be the one to read the judgment, he is now mourning for the dangers to which he feels his own life is exposed. Baruch is educated. He's no fool. He knows this word of the Lord calls for repentance and a change of ways for the people to trust in the Lord and not themselves or other things and certainly not other nations. He knows that the people are going to miss the promises of life that God is offering to them if they repent and that they will only hear the words of doom and they will ignore it and in retaliation are going to take it out on the one who gives the message. That is Baruch. And Baruch is realizing that it is not his own choice to do this, but it is God who is telling him to read and give this word. No doubt, long time in ministry with no success and no one listening, I would agree that it's probably pretty easy to be exhausted, physically, exhausted spiritually, and to identify with Baruch in a feeling that God has certainly not blessed him as he had hoped or thought that he should be. The world that they had been called to serve by God himself, falling apart around them. And while they had been protected, they had been experiencing suffering. Nothing seems to be working, and everything seems to be getting darker, and now it's Baruch's turn to have to declare. What about the life he was supposed to have? What about his last name? What about all those connections that he had been born into? What about all that education he had received? And now God puts him in a position where he is going to have to lose all of it. He won't get to be like his brother who got to have the nice cozy life in the palace. He is a scribe to a crazy prophet and the bearer of doom. It's no wonder he cries out like this. Life is not going the way he feels it should be going. Now, God is not punishing Barak. It's clear that God is responding to the sin of the people of Judah. God does not enjoy punishing. But as a result of sin, there is punishment for what we do. And Baruch is putting that blame all on God. And here we have in just a few short verses, God showing us that he sees and knows Baruch's heart. God has heard Baruch's heart. God has heard Baruch's thoughts. And that's a little sobering, is it not? Because if he hears Baruch's heart, 
if he knows Baruch's thoughts, well, there can be no doubt, friends, that then he hears our hearts. He knows our thoughts. God knows and sees in Baruch a lack of hope. See, Baruch himself knows that what God is going to do, he's going to do. That's very clear. But Baruch doesn't see a way forward for himself, has lost sight of trusting and hoping in God. How easy it is for trust and hope to waver when all we see and experience is sorrow and exhaustion. That craving that we have for tangible reassurance of God's faithfulness increases, does it not? Especially when things aren't going the way that we should. We need more and more convincing proofs that God is still with us. And when they don't come, it's always this same response. We blame God for the mess that we are in. And we are wondering why He, in this moment, when things are truly tough, has abandoned us. And when we find ourselves completely exhausted, we turn away from prayer, we turn away from trusting and hoping, realizing, you know what? I'm guessing I'm just on my own now. So I got to do what I got to do. We got to ensure our own safety, preserve our own life. And we start to endlessly analyze every single situation constantly scheming and working for what we want. we got to get to that place where we need absolute clarity. We need to know exactly what is going to happen before we decide what is best for us to do. Failing to remember that even after all these years, that whenever we blame someone or whenever we think that we need clarity in order to move forward, that that does not increase trust, nor does it increase hope. Not really. We begin craving answers. We begin craving what's best for ourselves. And this is where our friend Baruch is. And then verse 4 says, The Lord has told me to say to you, this is what the Lord says, I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the earth. Jeremiah tells his friend that this same message was the one that they were told to give in chapter 1. Not much has changed. Do you remember, right? He said that I am going to send you to say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid, for I'm with you and I'll rescue you. And then the Lord reaches down, touches Jeremiah's mouth and says, I put my words in your mouth. Today you will appoint nations, or you, I will appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And here we find Baruch having that moment where God said he's going to do this. That's already been happening and now it is coming to an end. The people are not going to repent, Baruch. The end is near and you're going to have to tell them. Perhaps this interaction is captured nine chapters later and 20 years later because Baruch was going to do more than just blame God for the mess that he was in. Perhaps Baruch was about to call it quits. Had thought about it, had analyzed it, and it was very clear to himself that the best thing to do is not to give God's word here, but to leave. He took a job thinking that would be the right thing to do. Attach yourself to a prophet. Those people got a good life. 
But this prophet has a message of doom from God, one of destruction. And now Baruch is going to lose everything he thought he would ever have. I'd say Baruch is regretting his choice and wondering what it would be like if he didn't have to worry about all this. Baruch is encountering a, the grass is greener on the other side. And for Baruch, the grass really is greener on the other side. If he chooses not to speak these words of the Lord and go to the palace life that his brother has, it'll be a little bit easier for a while. But what a struggle it is to wonder, does the truth really matter? Isn't it better to be liked? Isn't it better to just get along? Isn't it better to just kind of stay quiet and not involve ourselves in all of these things that are happening? Why do we have to speak God's truth? I think it's probably best that we all just kind of get along and say nothing. It's better to have a life where we just go with the flow instead of doing what God says or calls us to speak. And then God says, should you then seek great things for yourself? Do not. In the midst of an entire destruction of a nation, the Lord takes the time to come to one person and promises the one a very different fate than what is coming to the rest of his people. And when you are at the brink of blaming everyone else and blaming God for our problems and struggling and wanting to just kind of get away with it and wondering why did I even do any of the things that I did that following God that got me into this mess, I wonder what it feels like to have God speak directly to you. To have him look right at you and say, all of those things that you wanted, all the great things that you have thought up for yourself, your desires, my child, I know them. I see your heart. But those things that you think are so important and are so very real, they are not going to give you what you need. They are not going to fill that hole that you have. They can't. My child, seeking things from the world. You're seeking things that it cannot give you, only pretend to give you. So God looks at Baruch and says, everything is going to be judged. All the people throughout all the earth and all the worldly power and the popularity and the prestige is going to be swept away. You have become so concerned about great things like fame, making a name for yourself, feeling important and distinguished at work, constantly seeking social media and internet notoriety, Baruch, <laughs> or maybe us. The constant need for great things. God exposes to Baruch is a lack of eternal perspective. And when we look there, we miss the joy, the hope that is offered in Jesus. This isn't telling you that you shouldn't want great things and that you shouldn't be ambitious. Couldn't we say that Paul was ambitious and did great things? Couldn't we say that Peter was ambitious and, didn't, and did great things? Couldn't we say that Jesus was ambitious and no one did greater things than him? They were ambitious and they did great things, but they didn't do it for their own glory or for their own namesake. 
They thought they sought the great things of God, always remembering what Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 11. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you seek great things, you will miss. But in humility, understanding who Jesus is and who he has called you to be, you will be exalted. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 1 and 2. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Some preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely trying to stir up trouble. But he tells us about what great ambition should look like, what greatness truly is in chapter 2 when he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit and of mind. Not exalting yourselves, but humbling yourselves to be connected to each other. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do not look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And you know this, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance like a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee bows, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And then he says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless, pure, children of God without fault in this warped and crooked generation, shining like stars in the sky, holding firmly to the word of life. We come to worship the Lord Jesus to be encouraged by his word so that God himself will peel back those layers of our hearts, not setting our sights then on the greatness of a world that is passing and puffed up with self-importance. We have come to learn how to be faithful to Christ Jesus and to surrender our lives to his authority and his way of life. This is what Baruch listened to and was given his life, even though the nation was overturned and uprooted. That message wasn't just for Judah. Every nation will be overthrown and uprooted. Yet the promise to the one, the individual of faith, is life and grace to overcome the current times and receive what only God can give. That is the Lord's promise to each one of us here in his body and blood. And as we close today, I came across this, written by an apostle a few hundred years later, after Baruch. An apostle named John writing a letter during another crazy time when people again were turning away from God. And here he is at the end of his life concerned only with the eternal. Concerned with making sure that all who call on the name of Jesus will have life. 
And this is what John writes in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child Jesus as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. There is no call to greatness. There is a call to love. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, commands that are not burdensome. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes in Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. He did not come by water, but by water and blood. And is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. The three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony, God's promise to us is greater because it is His own, which He has given through His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not is calling God a liar because they have not believed what He has said. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life in His Son, Jesus. Whoever has the Son has life. The world may pass away, nations uprooted, your life filled with sorrow and struggling, but whoever has the Son has life. Three times you have heard from Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, greatness is not what He has called you to, but the blessedness that comes from belonging to Him. We have one more week of this sermon series. One more week of looking at Jeremiah and the promises of God for each one of us. But we have eternity with Jesus Christ. For those who have Jesus have real and eternal life. Let us stand together and confess the faith that we share in the Nicene Creed.